and welcome to With the First Link, the podcast that hopes to make our future as bright and as just as the one that we see in Star Trek The Next Generation. And we think that one way to do that is to recap and discuss the entire series one episode at a time, doing our best to look at it all through an anti-oppression, pro-diversity, anti-racist, anti-sexist lens. I'm Ruthie Kauper-Samoshi. And I'm Matthew Simone, and today we'll be talking about Angel One. This episode was written by Patrick Berry and directed by Michael Ray Rhodes. It first aired on January 22nd, 1988. So this episode looks at the idea of women in power in all the wrong ways, I would say. Um, So I thought for today's check-in, we could talk about our early introductions to feminism and maybe a little bit about how those how our understanding of feminism has grown and evolved over time. I like how, how you put that in. All the wrong ways. There's no no prime directive subjectivity here. You're like, this is just wrong. This, these are all the I wrong mean, it ways. Is. <laughs> Listen, we want to make our future as bright and as just as the one in TNG. We got to call it out when it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Did you want to start? Sure. So I had, I would say in many ways, like I was really lucky to have a very early introduction to feminism. I think it was just sort of always part of my part of the the air that I breathed, just the 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 world that I lived in always included feminism pretty heavily to the point where like I I I I've never felt at least not consciously that at least from my family that there were specific expectations of me that had anything to do with my gender. Mm-hmm. And I also was uh, really lucky to go to a school for most of my like middle school and well, yeah, all of my middle school and high school uh, education that um, had an explicitly feminist and social justice mission. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, I did not identify as a feminist until I started university and I realized that that really wonderful uh, world that I had around me was not actually uh, many people's reality. And I I thought sort of like, why would I need to identify as a feminist? Like, like why would I need to identify as that? That's just basic common sense. Uh, and then when I started university and I, I, I met more people and I, you know, I was exposed to a lot of diversity, some of it in really amazing ways and some of it, it's, you know, seeing some of more the the harsh bigotry of the world still being alive and well. Um, And that was when I started to use the word feminist to uh, describe myself and my my views. And then, so I I mean, I can say more about this later, but I would say that I had a pretty solid understanding of uh, like white feminism. And so in the last, I don't know, decade or so, I've been doing a lot of work, some of it conscious uh, and some of it just from, you know, being lucky enough to be around people who have a much more intersectional approach to feminism to to sort of realize that that feminism is not just the the ideas that I was exposed to as a, a kid, but that it has to incorporate uh, racial justice. It has to incorporate gender diversity. Um, it has to incorporate um, decolonialism, mm-hmm. decolonization. Uh, so yeah, so that's that was my introduction to feminism. What about yours? Yeah, I would say the 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 first like the concept of feminism, although I wouldn't have called it that at the time, but I think uh, was was from Star Trek Voyager. And so in Voyager, they introduced um, a woman as a captain, Captain Janeway. And as a young person watching it, I was like, yeah, I can get behind this. This is important. 
you know, that women should have uh, the same opportunities to to lead, to command. And as a young man watching the show, I'd think, would I be okay taking orders from a woman as captain? And I thought Janeway was was badass. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I could do this. I'm into this. This is great. But that was sort of the earliest concept. I think that later on in life, I when I went abroad and started working overseas, so my my university experience was was in international development. That's where I met you, Ruthie, in university. It's true. It's where we met. It's where we met, and in totally different programs. Totally different was programs. Not in the slightest international no. development, but anyway, no. Continue. But we lived together in residence and realized we were both yep. Trek nerds, and. Yep. Then I went abroad and, and met a woman named Esther Kenu, and uh, she became a partner uh, with us in a project to support a school that she started on her own without any international support, but it was directed uh, toward helping women and girls in Sierra Leone called the Women in Action Development Project. Because she knew, and, and, and which is true, is that women and children are, are both most impacted by war and inequality around the world. And so she said, if we could lift up this community, then then we'd be providing the most support we could to the most vulnerable people there. And in that case, I don't know if I would consider myself a feminist even then yet. It was more about being an ally. Like, I saw myself as an ally, but then I thought, like, I'm not benefiting directly from this myself because I'm a man. I didn't right. see the connection there. Uh, so right. as an ally, I'm saying I'm supporting people that are that are women in my life, that, uh, that are girls in my life. That's important, but I'm not directly benefiting from it. I didn't see that connection. I don't think I saw that connection until like early, I'd say 2013, 14. I was working at the university or Simon Fraser University, working with a number of young students who were outspoken feminists and starting to recognize more the impact that it had on my conceptions of masculinity. And how some of those were very toxic and how and how detangling those and seeing my own masculinity through a feminist lens was actually really healthy for me. And mm. I read Bell Hook's book, um, Feminism is for Everybody. And uh, okay. it's a fantastic book and, and talked about that very thing, that very quality of feminism and, and that breaking patriarchy down is actually good for everybody, men or women or however you identify is that it's like patriarchy is bad, it's suffocating for everyone, and it also narrows and creates th- these like stereotypical representations of both men and women. And so it's, and then I, so I, I think that's around the time that I started considering myself a feminist, seeing how it benefited uh, not only people that I was supporting as an ally, but also like it supports me too. Like that's, that's something for everybody. And, and that's when I think I would started, had started using that, that label. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think like one of, for me, one of the really important pieces of like being a feminist is because I feel like sort of when you were talking about like with with Janeway and the idea of like, yeah, like women in power, that's something I can get behind. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with people who say, you know, like, oh, well, these people don't consider themselves feminists. And, And this is something that's like people I've heard a lot of people, not just in my life, but like, you know, famous people talk about this all the time. Like, you might not consider yourself a feminist, but if you think women and men should have equal rights, then you are a feminist. That's what it means. And I think that that's like, that's part of it. But I, I think that part of it is also recognizing that all genders do not have equal rights. Like, I think that part of the reason I didn't identify as a feminist when I was a teenager was that I thought that the work had been done. I didn't think that we needed to do more work to improve women's rights, at least not like in Canada, in the society that I was living in. Sure, yeah. And so I think that 
personally, I don't think that just believing that women should, you know, have the same rights as men. Personally, I don't think that 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 that's not my definition of feminism. My definition of feminism is like believing that believing that all genders deserve equal rights and equitable rights and believing and understanding that that we are not there, that that is not the case right yeah. now and that we need to continue to work to that in like again because like I was saying my my experience was very much formed by my own whiteness and the whiteness that was around me like we need to use an intersectional anti-racist approach yep. to to all of that so yep. I think that for me part of feminism is always being recognizing that there is still growth that needs to happen that you haven't arrived there yet that's been a big wake-up call for me over the last couple of years and I think it's because I grew up in these protected spaces. So you don't, yeah. I didn't see as much of the oppression and because a lot of that doesn't come directed at me because of who I am, right? That mm-hmm. I'm I'm a privileged member of, of that society. So I grew up in, in like nerdy groups of progressive Star Trek fans. So all of us believed these values to some degree. I mean, obviously not as evolved as they are later in life, but mm-hmm. no one would, would think that this was a strange thing to have a woman as a captain of a starship kind of thing. Right. And then later on in life, I grew up, even in the early parts of my professional career, we're all working in a progressive university bubble. And, right. and that was protected space as well. And you just think everyone believes these things. The world has gotten so much better now. And the big wake-up call for me was there was a couple things, but basically in the lead-up and the anticipation of the 2016 election. Mm. And all this stuff starts bleeding out into not only the wider society, but you start seeing it, this, like, toxicity in fan spaces and in the university spaces and in the city around the university and, you know, recruitment of white supremacy and, you know, people wanting to boycott the Star Wars movie because it had a diverse cast and people being upset about Discovery, Star Trek Discovery having a diverse cast. And you're like... Where did all this stuff come from? And then you realize, wow, there's so much work that still has to be done. And wow, I the reason why I didn't see that is because I'm shielded away from this stuff. Because there right. are other people in the fandom, and of course, just in the wider society, that experience this kind of, of toxicity and hate all the time. So they know that it's always been there, but I didn't because I'm shielded from it. And so I think that when all that, so much of that came forward with such pride and arrogance uh, in those years and the and the preceding, that then it was like, wow, okay, that there, there really does need to be a lot more work done. And I mean, that is a perfect example, almost like a definition of what privilege is. Like, yes, exactly. I didn't have to be aware of I those yeah, things. I, I didn't have to know. Or be and, impacted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I wasn't impacted, so yeah. I could be unaware. Yeah, so it must, sure. it must not be happening then, right? Um, and there's no way it's happening yeah. if I'm not experiencing it. Yeah. That's why, personally, I think I, one of the only ways to get through that shell or that protection of privilege is, is really empathy and trying to believe mm-hmm. people and their stories and, and uh, the impact of them and, and listening to their truth and what's happened. Because otherwise, you're, you can just sit in that bubble and just say, yeah. no, that's not. Or you're just complaining and looking for attention. This isn't really a problem, right? Yeah, I think it, that's why, like, I think it's so important to, like, if you're a reader, like, to read books by, I used to say by, like, people who don't look like you, but I don't think that's actually it because that's, like, again, centering whiteness, but, like, by people who are not of the dominant privileged culture. You need to, like, read books. You need to consume media that is both created and, you know, like, if it's a movie or a TV show that, like, has characters who are not part of the the dominant privileged culture because, I mean, it's like we talked about this a few episodes ago with LeVar Burton that he talks about, like, stories are a great way to build that empathy. Yeah. And and I think that that's one of the 
not, it's not the only thing to do by any means, but it's, it's a really important way to do yeah. it. And, and it's also like, even in rewatching, uh, Star Trek and, and I mean, this for sure has happened as, and I, as I'm sure it has with you, like just as I've watched it as an adult being like, Ooh, that's, <laughs> that's not good. But in, you know, some of these episodes that I haven't seen that we're watching now doing this, like through the podcast episodes that I haven't seen since I was a, a little kid and being like, wow, like, there's just so there's such little diversity even in a show that that wants to take on diversity right. in such an important way and i mean this episode is definitely an example of that in terms of gender yeah um, but does but it pretty safely what do you mean like it, safely? W- without really feeling like the status quo is getting challenged too much right 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 yeah yeah totally that it it does it but but yeah it doesn't challenge the the world in the time that it was created yeah. by any means so yeah I wonder now if there's an advantage to having shows on streaming services where you can probably tune it toward a smaller audience and still make it like a viable product that they can do more of this kind of work now where you can mm. get edgier and more cutting edge and more progressive without having to like mass market the product. I don't know if that's the case or not. And I wonder if that's one advantage to everyone doing so much streaming now is that you can you can create content that's more in line with one creative vision. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder. Like, I feel like it definitely has happened. And it's hard to know whether that's because more diverse writers have more access to to getting their work out there or if it has to do with like, you don't rely on ad revenue to the same yeah, extent. Exactly, or... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. Huh. All right. All right. Well, I want to do one quick revisit of our last episode's theme for a second, if that's cool with yeah. you. Yeah. Um, so I, I feel like I did a miss here. And so I want to I wanna make up for something. My, my brother sent me a screenshot. Uh, he was driving around the other day and he sent me a screenshot of, of his car's dashboard where he was playing our episode off Spotify last, on Data Lore um, that we posted nice. last week. And as soon as hi he Matthew's did, brother, hi Matthew's brother. That's my brother Peter. So shout out to Peter out there listening to our episodes. And then I realized I was like, last week's episode was a perfect uh, chance to talk about him and do a shout out to him. Uh, oh no, and then I didn't. And then in addition to that, to rub salt in that wound of my mistake, yesterday was siblings' day, and I was like, oh man. So um, because I made a joke about whether or not you had an evil sibling, and you said no, that your sibling is is marvelous. Oh and no, then, and then I didn't. <laughs> I didn't like say anything about my own sibling. So because I was putting myself in the mindset of of young person watching Star Trek, because we had mentioned we talked about chosen family and how it had introduced me to that concept of chosen family. And my brother and I are pretty far apart in age. We're nine, nine and a half years uh, different. So he's nine right. and a half years my younger. But as we've grown older, my brother and I have have become very close. And and so when I mentioned that at the time, like back then when I was a kid, I didn't really feel very connected to many people in my family. As I've gotten older, my brother and I have become very close. And uh, we've kept in touch even like through the pandemic. I haven't seen him in person in over a year. And I'm as one of the people I'm most looking forward to being able to see after I'm vaccinated. Um, and so I just wanted to give that shout out to Peter. Uh, so I'm sorry, I should have mentioned you uh, at the last <laughs> Uh, last episode thanks for listening to our episodes and always being so supportive of my wacky ideas i do appreciate it. yeah i think that's that's so interesting i feel because, so like my sister i mean i'm a younger sibling so i've always had an older i don't i've always had a sibling but like like you, you were an only child for a long time i was yeah right like you were an only child for nine years and during those nine years you were watching a lot of star trek I was, right? yes. so so that was that makes i mean i think in some ways to i don't know 
if this is helpful not to be too hard on yourself to to like keep that in mind that that was like your experience yeah was really different yes um but that is really nice to to know that he was listening and yeah he he always listens in and has thoughts about the episodes that he sends our way which is great yeah yeah. Okay, let's jump back into our plot summary of this episode. Yeah. In this episode, the Enterprise attempt to rescue the crew of a missing freighter from a planet with a matriarchal government. Meanwhile, a pandemic spreads throughout the ship. Ugh, another pandemic. Another one, yeah. Too real. Too re- yeah, this one's a respiratory pandemic, yeah, not a... not a touch one. Not a... Gr- or a... Or- drunkenness yeah it's one. not drunk gravity water although that one yeah. i'm still i wish they could bottle that stuff i would totally buy it <laughs> All right. so what's going on ruthie what happened so well i mean this episode has like a few different plots so there's like the a plot i call it like the a plot the b plot and the c plot so we start off with the a plot that the enterprise has found a freighter the odin that's been missing for uh, seven years and there are no it's survivors so yes a long time um, there are no survivors, uh, but three escape pods are missing. So there's this nearby planet, Angel One. That's such a like TOS or like first season TNG name, Angel One. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Yeah, I hadn't <laughs> thought of it like that, but that is true. Um, but yeah, so they want to go to this planet to see if if there are any survivors there. And one thing I made a note of is that they're talking about like how long how long it would have taken them to get to that planet in the escape pods. And I just made a note of it because there's kind of like a nice callback to it at the end where like we start to see that like Data's, um, his like need to always be accurate can isn't just an annoying like quirk that he has. It's actually something that can be helpful because it comes in back at the end. But I think it's also really cute that he's saying, they're like, it would have taken five months. And he's like, five months, six days, 11 hours, two minutes. And then Riker's like, okay, thanks. And he keeps going. He says, and 57 seconds. Yeah, like, he doesn't let Riker cut him off. It's in his nature. He's like, that's, that's yeah. what I do. That's how I function. I like and it. it's helpful. And I, as and as you said, we'll see that it later. It is. Yeah. And I also wonder if there's, I mean, I don't, I know that, like, the, these episodes were really written to be episodic, but I kind of wonder, like, thinking of the episode we just saw with Lore and maybe Data's, like, feeling a little more secure in himself that he's like, I don't need to try to be just like humans. I'm going to find my way, my way. Because I definitely don't want to be like my brother who turned out to be evil. Yeah. So I'm going to embrace some of these little idiosyncrasies. Yeah. That and I, have. I guess in a sense, because we talked about the duality between lore and data and how, like, uh, we forgot to mention this in the, the actual names, but lore, this idea that it's 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 just kind of told yeah. story, whereas data is you know, more factual. You can trust one, you can't trust the other. Not that people's stories aren't trustworthy, but, you know, in this particular duality. But data, yeah. in, in a sense, data's precision is a way of him being truthful. Right? Like he's, mm-hmm. this is the truth of the time that is required to do this thing. Yeah, it's not just five months. It's actually five months, six days, 11 hours, two minutes and 57 seconds. Yeah. So take that, Riker. Take that, Riker. <laughs> uh, so they know that this this society where these freighter people may have landed or might be have taken refuge is a matriarchal society. And so in this case, the captain's like, maybe it would be better if Troy makes first contact because she's a woman. Yeah, there's also, um, there's a a sort of nice little moment where they say, like, it's a matriarchal society, and Troy's like, oh, kind of like my home planet. Like, we don't learn a whole lot about Beta Zed, 
So I kind of liked that. I wish they had gone into that more at some point, but that's mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a weird moment where like Worf is like, I like a strong woman. Yeah, he, like Klingons, Klingons <laughs> like strong women. Yeah, appreciate like, strong women. Uh, sure you do. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Unless they stand up to you, Worf. And then. It's cool as long as it's amusing for us, but don't actually yeah. use it to do anything. Troy makes first contact with the, the elected one is what the, the person in charge mm-hmm. is called. Mm-hmm. Um, and she kind of like spins it at first as though, you know, oh, it's been so long since the Federation has said hi to you. Um, and they're like, well, we don't care. Um, so, so she, then she says like, well, actually we're, we're hoping for, to look for some survivors from the Odin freighter. Right. And Beata or Beata, something like that, uh, the elected one basically is like, we will briefly, we will tolerate a brief visit. LaForge says, yeah, you ever get the feeling that you're not really wanted somewhere? Yeah. yeah they, they seem yeah. very reluctant about them coming down to visit. Yeah, very, like, hostile. Mm-hmm. So then we get, we we start we start with the, the B plot. Um, we see the away team carrying a, a gift uh, on their way to the transporter room, and they run into Wesley and his friend in these amazing silver snowsuits. I want to go skiing in one of those. You'd just be like a flash of light. Yeah, it'd be like, amazing. <laughs> on the They're like these the silvery – they're probably very warm. You know, they're future snowsuits, good times. Yeah, so he and his friend are – they're going on a, a skiing field trip on the holodeck. That's cool. Imagine the kinds of field trips you could have on the holodeck. Yeah, you could go anywhere you wanted. I mean yeah, – that would be super cool. I would like to think, well, based on our own perspective from being here in the 21st century, that being on the Enterprise would itself be a field trip. But, you know, you maybe get used to just being out in space and you want to do something else. <laughs> Yeah, you, if you want to go somewhere and the Enterprise isn't anywhere near it. Then you got to go skiing on the holodeck. But one thing that I actually really like about about this scene is Wesley and his and his pal, as soon as they go onto the holodeck, you see them start throwing snow at each other. And it's just really nice to see Wesley, like, being a kid. You know, like, that's that's accurate. That is a thing that kids will do. Like, yeah, snow, let's throw it at each other. Like, even teenagers will do that sometimes, right? And, like, I don't know. I just feel like it's it's nice to see. He gets to actually be a kid. Which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so before the away team beams, beams down, uh, Picard basically like drives home that Angel One is strategically important. They hope that maybe one day they can be part of the Federation. Um, so I guess basically just setting it up to be like, you know, don't, don't just be jerks about it. Like try to, try to make a good impression. Um, and then he, he has a, a log that explains, it's so weird the way he says it. He's like, it's an unusual matriarchal society where the female is as aggressively dominant as the male gender was on Earth hundreds of years ago. So, like, first of all, I'm not a fan of using, like, female and male to talk about genders. It's pretty dehumanizing. Uh, and it also kind of erases the, or, or it, it ignores the, the fact that gender, you know, that while while there are biological differences between sexes, like genders are social constructs and not not as binary as as they are portrayed uh, often. But also, like, can we talk about maybe the idea that that this is just universally true on Earth that men are in charge everywhere on Earth? Because I feel like that's only the case because of colonialism, right? Yeah. And and yes, certainly there were there have societies, societies, like even in pre-contact Africa that were considered like acephalous, you know, that there isn't necessarily even one leader at all or leadership right. rotates. Or leadership is 
changes based on a given circumstance or situation that had to be approached depending on whose skills were were best suited to that particular task. And a lot, you're right, a lot of the structures, other structures that humans have assembled themselves into have been destroyed over time mm-hmm. by Yeah, Korean, I think, so. like, it's, yes. it's true of a lot of, like, indigenous or First Nations, like, uh, societies, like, in North America, pre, pre-contact, pre there was a lot of, I mean, I don't know, I don't think it was, it was universally true, but, yeah, like, it, there were a lot of societies that had very different leadership structures. Yeah. And that leadership was more of a, like, responsibility as opposed to, like, yeah. so, so, yeah, I think that's just a, just something I wanted to just kind of call out this idea of like, oh, you know, back back on Earth, back when back when men were in charge of everything, that that was that that wasn't something that was like an inherent truth about people here. They try to point it out just to make the episode work mm-hmm. as a, as an allegory, I suppose. But you're right. It's not even true that necessarily that men have dominated everything on our own planet. So, yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of reasons I feel that this episode doesn't work. <laughs> so. Yeah. So yeah. So so Troy kind of takes the lead uh, in explaining the mission. The away team is is Troy, Yar, Riker, and Data. So so Troy is kind of taking the lead. Um, and Beata won't say whether there are any survivors on the planet. Like she's very secretive, and she's got a one of the other mistresses is what what they're called. Um, is also very like openly hostile, and um, I guess. You know, worth pointing out that there there is this one man who is kind of her like I don't know assistant, um, and yeah. he is smaller in stature. He is a shorter guy, so I think yep. you know they want to talk about like yeah, men are men are the smaller of the especially in contrast to Riker, right? Uh, who is Riker's quite tall, super tall. So this guy, his name's yeah. Trent. He's so he he takes them basically he takes the away team to their accommodations, I guess. Their their room, their quarters. She also, Beata says, is this man implying and kind of talks past Riker to Troy, mm-hmm. like when Riker's trying to say something. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because they, they try to write these essentially with their microaggressions yeah. for him, but are are written in the context of, well, this is how women are spoken to. They're kind of in our society, they're pushed off the side or talked past. And so it's two conver- it's a conversation between two women. So they're trying to show like a a reverse or mirror of this idea of the micro a sexist microaggression. Yeah, and in some ways I think like that that does resonate. Like I I saw mm-hmm. and also ways and we'll get into this later but like the ways that she talks to Riker that she's often talking about like, "Oh, you look so handsome. Ooh, this really brings out the color of your eyes." And right, like she's yeah. and and that felt very like uh true to life. Also, sure. I think I think maybe some credit belongs with the the actor. I can't, actually don't remember her name, um, who plays Beata. That she does a good job of like being a kind of like creepy, but you know, plausible deniability creep <laughs> that that yeah. I think a lot of that we see a lot from men. I also think, and again, we can get into this later on as well. I th- one of the things that that I have such a hard time with for this episode is that. I, I'm never a fan of the argument like when a woman does something that is not okay 
And people say like, well, if a man did that to a woman, it wouldn't be okay. So if a woman does it to a man, that can't make it okay. And while I think that that is often true, like when we're looking at things like gender-based discrimination or violence, like you have to keep in mind the existing power structures. And I guess the idea here is that the power structures are different and they're flipped. But I mean, it's... There are times when I do feel uncomfortable because I feel like we're supposed to laugh at that. Like, I feel like it's kind of played to be funny. Right. And and the, and it just makes me uncomfortable. The other problem with this is that it shows it's this whole idea with how we deal with oppression and equality that I think people are genuinely concerned that when there is a struggle for equity or for equality, when it's a cause like feminism, any sort of anti-oppression initiative, that it really isn't to break oppression, it's to flip oppression. Right, yeah. The people are yeah. scared, oh, well, feminism isn't really about equity or equality, it's really just about women being in charge. Right. Or when some people talk about, like, diversity, they're like, oh, this is just so that white people can be oppressed. Yeah. It's 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 like white genocide, and all like, nonsensical terms. And I think that actually is telling from on the part of people who respond this way is that they, either they don't believe that a world could be equal, that we could share power right. effectively, or they don't believe in, they believe that there's no one who sincerely wants to share power. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, that, that, that is not possible. So it's like, in this case, this society is is just flipped. And I guess it's a way to mirror what's going on in our society. But it, wouldn't it have been more effective, I wonder, as a story, if it had been written such that like, no, like... We actually came across society that's has won the struggle, but I guess that's what the federation is supposed to be. So then it wouldn't like right, be the yeah. Because even though we rarely see in next generation at this point, we we've barely seen that real like equality, right. or <laughs> we, we haven't seen it. But the idea is that it's already been evolved, and this is like that. Like Angel One is similar to what Earth used to be like, but isn't anymore. Right. Yeah, it is in a lot of ways. Yeah, like these people are often like, I guess, sort of telling on themselves of being like, well, you know, if if we were to give you power, then you would just treat us the way we treat you, which is also kind of like, OK, so then you are. Yeah, you're acknowledging. You are conceding. Yeah. You're acknowledging that the way you treat us is not OK. And it is oppressive. Yeah. So rather yeah. than saying, oh, there's no oppression. That's why it's. Yeah. It, and it's you hear that in people when they discuss. Sometimes when they're discussing things like immigration, it's like, oh, this is a slow takeover. This is people taking Mm -hmm. over. Do you know how large this population of people is or that it's growing? Like, do you want these people here? So it's it's always in terms of that power struggle. Yeah. It's So again, it's either they don't believe that equality is possible or they just Mm -hmm. don't believe that anyone really wants it. It's there's like there's an episode of um well they kind of talk about this a little bit in in even in Deep Space Nine there's a there's a part where Rom I can't remember which episode it is but there's a quote where he's talking about uh breaking the chains of oppression and in terms of their own society Ferengi society he's like well they're like why don't you just you know basically become a socialist society and he kind of I can't remember who he's talking to in particular but he's like well he's like these people aren't trying to break the oppression they're trying to become the oppressors. He's like, that's the mm. point of it is to try to become the oppressor rather than the oppressed, mm. you know, which is kind right. of like what our own society is like in terms of capitalism. But yeah. Back on, on Angel One, uh, Troy and and Riker sort of when, once they're in their accommodations and they they establish that there are no no listening devices. Troy and Riker are kind of discussing like that there's there's something weird going on. They're absolutely positive based on like everyone's behavior, they're absolutely positive that there are survivors, but there's a lot of like paranoia about this. And one thing that Troy says is that 
the their fear is not focused. Right. They're not all afraid of the same thing. Yeah. So that's that'll come up, I guess. Yeah. And then and then we learn the the C plot of this episode. So the third important thing that's sort of going on is that there are, the Federation posts along the neutral zone have detected uh, Romulan battle cruisers. So once this mission is done, the Enterprise needs to go to the neutral zone. Um, and this is the first mention in TNG of Romulans. Yeah, they were always reclusive and mysterious, even in the original series. You don't see them very often. Do you not? I, I've only seen like one or two episodes with uh, with Romulans in the original. The one that has uh, the guy who plays Sarek as like the first Romulan. For a while, if I remember, I might be remembering wrong. So for, for other TOS fans out there, I'm sorry if I'm wrong. But I, I think even the concept of the cloaking device was first only with the Romulans, that the Klingons didn't necessarily uh, okay. have it. So, And I think that was because the Romulans were, they were the, the ones that were cloaked and secretive and their society was very xenophobic and no one had really seen them for a long time. And even in the original series, no one, when the when the Romulans make their first appearance in the original series, no one had, no one had really seen them for a long time then either. Yeah. So there's these long stretches of time that go by before the Federation has really any contact with the Romulans. And it's certainly not until later in TNG that we have frequent contact with them. Yeah, no, this is the first they've been, and we don't even have, like, there's no interaction with them in this episode. They weren't in the movies, were they? There are Romulans in the TNG movies, but yeah, not but in the not original in Star Trek Six. there's a little bit, I think, of... Briefly, there's a Romulan Briefly. ambassador. Yeah. But, but, there, but there isn't, like, major presence of the Romulans. Yeah, like the, the movies that have stuff. come out at this point. In yes. the series, there there weren't any Romulans. Okay, cool. Yeah, and so then this is when Picard gets hit in the face with the snowball. This is when Picard gets hit in the face with the snowball from the holodeck. And as you had pointed out earlier, there's inconsistency as to what survives outside of the holodeck or not in terms of stuff. Well, it's really it's funny because I had always heard that there was this inconsistency, but so far we've seen Wesley dripping on the floor in the first episode, and yep. then we've seen the lipstick staying on Picard's face, and then a snowball hits him in the face. So I think at this point it is pretty consistent that stuff does last at least for some time outside of the holodeck. Outside of the holodeck, yeah. But we'll see other times when like they throw objects out of the holodeck and they just vanish instantly. So. Right, yeah. It's very plot specific. That's cool. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, Picard gets super annoyed. Well, he does have a lot of stuff land on him in the in the first couple seasons. <laughs> I noticed. I was thinking about this, like stuff hits him or gets spilled on him or whatever. Um, but yeah, they get hit, and he's like, he's like reportants, and as if it requires some kind of. You just get hit know, with snowball. It's dude. so That's funny. It. It's, it's Wesley's report. like, uh, it just kind of happened. Like, kind of ha- We sort of were fooling out. around. Yeah. What What else do you need? That's so funny. I'm just like imagining imagining having like a conversation with a student about that tell me what happened like tell i don't know reports. we were throwing a snowball and your face got in the way like your face what, got in the way what is it report? What we used to get trouble first we weren't allowed to throw snowballs at school it was like such a buzzkill yeah like no one it's like and then they always told us a story about like the one the one student who went blind from getting hit with a snowball right because there and was like a rock if, or ice or yeah i always wonder if that ever actually ever happened but maybe it yeah didn't. i don't know I anyways don't. they they notice there's a strange scent when when Wesley and his and his companion walk away, Worf says it's like night blooming throgni. Which I have one of those in my house, actually. Oh, you have a night blooming throgni. I do. Yeah, it's very sensitive to temperature, and so I always have to keep it in its own case. I don't know if you're being serious right now. <laughs> no, <I'm> not, <laughs> I was like, no, is, is this an actual thing? <laughs> I don't think so. I now that you said so. it, maybe it is. I think there's some a... botanist listening who's like, that's a real plant, you morons. <laughs> if it is, please write us and tell us all about it. I think it's the implication is that it's a Klingon 
a Klingon flower. Because later, later Crusher says like, oh, it smells like something Klingon. Like something Klingon, yeah. It's some kind of uh, Klingon perfume or, yeah. or plant or something. Yeah. But there's a scent of it in the air. And that continues on. We don't talk about that. Yeah, well, there's a scent of it. And also, also Wesley's like, oh, I can't smell anything. I'm a little congested from the snow. Back on the planet, Beata tells the away team that there are Odin survivors. Um, but this, some of the mistresses didn't want to, to tell them about this. It was not unanimous. Yeah, it was split. Uh, decision to tell them. Um, but they, there were four men. And they are living in hiding. Uh, they don't know, Beata doesn't know who they are because they basically, when they came to the planet, they at first accepted hospitality and then started to behave against the natural order of things and kind against of- Against the natural order. Yeah, Revolutionaries. Yeah. Stirring up, stirring up trouble, stirring up rebellion. So they're, so she's like, I, I would tell you where they are, but I don't know. Um, but also she, she, like she makes uh, them promise that they're gonna take them away, so she wants yes. them off the planet. Yeah, as long if you, I'll let you find them, but you got to take them out of here. Yeah, so they sort of they come up with an idea of like how to find how to find them. That they're like we're gonna look for an element that doesn't exist here, but does exist in other Federation worlds, I guess, and then we'll scan the planet for that. Um, and Beata makes a. A comment about like oh when when data needs to use the library and she's like our libraries are far too sophisticated for a man to understand and right. data's like well no that's okay though because i'm i'm actually an android so yeah it's just i'm just anatomically male and she's yeah. like that's interesting yeah she's like maybe our men could learn a thing or two from you i don't know what that's supposed to mean but he like proudly steps forward about it too. He's like, actually, I'm not a man. Yeah, I, I, I kind of like that. The, <laughs> yeah. the problem isn't that you're being sexist. The problem is that I'm actually not like a stupid man or whatever you think I am. Yeah. It's like, I see a, round, I, a way around your problems diplomatically. Yeah, but. exactly. Yeah. And then meanwhile, on the ship, Wesley and his friends are, are sick. Crusher needs to figure out how this virus is transmitted. When I saw that and people are sick and sniffling, you're like, right away, because we're all sensitive to this now. You're like, why isn't anyone putting masks Open on Open air sick bay. Why like- are, yeah, why isn't everything <laughs> locked down and like sealed off on the ship? Yeah. Like, why can't, it's twice now you're not able to contain a virus yeah. on your vessel. Have you learned nothing from? Have you learned nothing? So then we get into another uncomfortable scene. Um, where Riker is getting ready to meet with Beata, and so he needs to change his clothes. And he's like, like he's he's getting kind of annoyed. I feel at like Yar and Troy, who are like laughing about what he's going to wear because they're like, "Are you seriously going to parade around like one of them?" Um, and he's like, "Yeah, I'm going to wear the uh, the indigenous apparel." And he says, "On Kabatris, I had to wear furs to meet with the leadership council, and on Armis Nine, I wore feathers." Which feathers, yeah. I actually would have wanted to see both of those outfits. That would have been great. This scene immediately falls apart in the next sentence. However. <laughs> For this, up to this first part, I was like, okay, like, he's trying to show that he's taking his diplomatic role seriously. Yeah. However, however. However, then he's like, oh, are you objecting because she's an attractive woman? Yeah, and you're like, Ugh, So, okay. yeah. And, but I mean, I, I feel like, yes, he is taking his diplomatic roles seriously, but the other side of that, which, again, I don't like, I don't always like saying, like, oh, well, if this happened to a woman, it it's, you know, it's okay when it happens to a man, but not when it happens to a woman, because again, right. we need to keep the, the power structures like in, in mind. But the, the outfit that he has to put on is, which we see shortly after, 
is not super dissimilar to like if a woman was required to wear like a super short skirt and, you know, like. Yeah, and some leader was like, put this on to meet with me. And it's an outfit that I don't want to say it's like inherently objectifying because all clothing can be used for all kinds of things. But like the fact that he's basically told to put on an outfit to like show a lot more skin is right. like not not cool. But yeah, and then he he re- also like says that thing about like, oh, is this because she's an attractive woman? And yeah, just falls <laughs> totally apart. Rather than saying like, yeah, and them having the conversation about the fact that he is being coerced. That this is a, it is a coercive yeah, situation he, because he can't really refuse. Right, because like Picard said, they need to make a good impression. And this is like, I think like that actually could have been like a really interesting conversation of like, how much does that needing to make a good impression, how do you weigh that against being treated poorly by the by the planet that you're, you're visiting, right? Like- And- uh, Without getting too much into an aside about this, I find that this is also a common theme about how diplomacy works in Star Trek, is that in order for us to make diplomatic contact, we have to let ourselves be humiliated by some rule or culture of their society, rather than just saying like, well, no, like, it's it's not as if every contact is like, we have to do something weird in order to appease somebody. Right. Like, that's not, that's, it is a very, I would say, almost Eurocentric way of, of looking at diplomacy. Like, you just have to submit to whatever they ask of you. Or, or that every other custom is going to be somehow weird or oh, humiliating. Oh, I see. Yeah, like the right? sort of exoticizing so, of the other. Yes, yeah. yes. Which I think, to call myself out a little bit, it probably connects to, you know, the idea of like, he had to wear furs on this planet and feathers on this other planet that again, like the, that is um, exoticizing of, you know, there are furs and feathers are things that people on earth wear as well. Yeah. Where I found most of the time when I traveled places and I was in parts of the world that were very different, the only thing people wanted to do is like share their favorite meal with me. Right. Right. And the only thing I had to do was be polite enough to try like a new type of food. Right. Right. So in most, I wonder how many cases and most of the time in Star Trek would actually be like, thanks for visiting us. Here's our favorite fruit on this planet. Would you like to try it? They'd be like, sure. But that doesn't make for great tension. I right. Suppose. Yeah. It's not, it doesn't allow you to laugh at the other quite quite so much yes yeah meanwhile on the ship picard has contracted the virus and crusher orders him to go to bed uh he gives laforge command of the ship and then Worf starts to feel a little sneezy he's very pressing about that in the moment i thought in one case though i don't know if that was supposed to be a contrast to what was going on in the planet or, or like to try to show same similar theme because she is the only person that can give the captain orders. Oh yeah, he's yeah, like, yeah. is that an order? And she's like, is that it an sure order, is. doctor? <laughs> and she's like, yes, go to bed. Right. Okay. I didn't actually, I didn't pick up on that, but yeah, like it is like a parallel to. There's a woman in charge. Yeah, and I thought that was supposed to be. It was supposed to show like a parallel storyline because Picard's out. Yeah. Well, I guess. Crusher didn't end up being in charge. It's Jordy, but yeah. she has to lead the efforts on the ship to get everyone. Yeah, healthy. yeah, and she does. Ha- I mean, maybe not, not maybe a complete parallel, but just like, just like Riker has to allow Troy to take the lead on the negotiations with Angel One. Yeah, Riker or Picard has to allow Crusher. Well, he has to follow Crusher's orders. So yeah, apparently the original script had more. Riker like having trouble with allowing Troy to be in charge. Oh. I'm glad they got rid of that. That doesn't sound yeah. like it would have been fun to watch. I don't think that would have been fitting of his character either at all. No. 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 Meanwhile, though, on the ship, Worf finds a platinum trace. So apparently platinum doesn't exist on Angel One. So he finds a trace 
of platinum on the planet. So that's where the Odin survivors are. Mm-hmm. Troy and Yar laugh at what Riker is wearing. And like like I was saying, like it is an outfit that shows a lot. Like his entire chest is exposed. Uh, again, it's I think it's from the right. It's not the character's fault or the yeah, actor's. I mean, it's yeah, a writing yeah, point yeah. of view. They they would have been a little bit more empathetic and said like, are you okay with this? Like you're being... Yeah. You're you're being objectified intentionally right now, and you have you're feeling like you're obligated to do this. And I think it's written in a way that Riker's actually kind of excited for this to happen. Yeah, which is like also I think telling from the writing perspectives, like oh, this would be cool to be in this society where we were objectified, and it's like no, that people don't enjoy being objectified. Yeah, I think I and I I would say that Jonathan Frakes doesn't play it super consistently. There are times where he looks uncomfortable with it. And so the way I have kind of made sense of that for myself, not saying that this is any sort of objective truth, but when people are in situations where they're uncomfortable, they can find ways of like making the best of it. So yes. the fact that Riker like sometimes smiles about what's going on here to me doesn't say that that means he's enjoying it. No, it's trying to normalize the situation. Yeah, like people do that all the time. Yes, and unfortunately it's used against them in mm-hmm. trials. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like when someone's been assaulted or been abused, and then they'll say, well, what did you do afterwards? And they'll be like, well, I, I stayed, but I made food or something. Right. And they'll be like, well, right. why didn't you leave immediately? And you're like, because that's a way to deal, like, to try to, like, compartmentalize what's just yeah. happened to you. Or, like, to try to tell myself, no, I didn't actually just go through this traumatic experience. Yeah, or to say, like, I guess it was okay. Exactly. Like, I guess, really, I'll I'll tune out my own instinct yeah. and try to make the situation seem more normal. So I don't know if that was like Freaks' intent when he was playing it this way, but that's my, that's how I'm choosing to interpret this because mm-hmm. I, otherwise I feel really uncomfortable with the idea that he was like enjoying being, like it makes sense that he's upset that Yar and Troy are like giggling at how he's dressed. And at one point, like Yar even says he looks sexy which is yeah. also not cool. And again, I totally agree. Like it, it's this is on the writers. This is not mm-hmm. not on like the characters specifically or on the on the actors. When I heard her deliver that line, I'm like, here's another reason why why this actor decided to leave the show. <laughs> yeah. Quite possibly, yeah. Yeah, I was like, poor Denise Crosby. Yeah. Meanwhile, back on the ship, there's like, just like we're experiencing daily reports of how many more cases of the yeah, virus. Yeah, yeah, 82 ship. more cases. The holodeck is being used as an isolation ward, which. Makes a lot of sense, actually, because you could make the isolation ward seem as great as you possibly could. That would could. be great, yeah. <laughs> There's a really nice scene where, so Worf's, first of all, Worf's sneezing. He has this, like, massive sneeze. I'm pretty sure they added a reverb to the soundtrack they as did. well. It's they did, like see, echoes. Yeah, it sounds like it echoes. It's, yeah, LaForge <laughs> is like, okay, you have to go. Yeah, he's like, the whole ship knows you're sick. But then there's a, a kind of nice scene, which doesn't seem to connect to anything else, but is just, I just genuinely enjoyed it, where something goes wrong in engineering and LaForge is like about to go down to engineering and Worf is like, nope, your job is on the bridge right now. Yeah. Like, I mean, he doesn't, you know, he's he's still a superior officer, so he's not like telling him what to do, but he's like, with all due respect, LaForge, like there are other people who can solve that. And LaForge says like, thanks for the advice. A, a nice moment of like two people, two guys also, not something I think we saw a lot of in the in the 80s, two, two men, one of them being like, you're right. I was wrong. Thank you. Yeah. Also kind of foreshadowing or letting, reminding us as an audience that LaForge has enhanced technical prowess. Like that's kind of his thing. You know, and he, and there's this moment he wants to leave the bridge and go down to engineering to do stuff. And I was like, I don't know if they 
planned for him yet to be in that role but in that moment like having that foreknowledge now you're like oh wait a second that's that's kind of an interesting scene that's interesting he feels like his place maybe is is down in engineering doing the Mm -hmm. technical yeah i was wondering that too if this was if this was intentional or if they just like yeah just a happy coincidence they beam down to the site where the refugees are the human refugees down on the planet well just sorry to clarify three of the away team Go. Three of the way team go, right? Because, because Riker is, Riker is staying there. with Beata. Yeah. And this is, again, like, you know, talking about the stuff we're, stuff I'm, we're not comfortable with. But, like, she was like, oh, like, your away team can handle this without you. And, and kind of like, oh, are you saying your women can't handle it without you? So kind of putting him in a position where, regardless of what he wants, he has to stay with her. But, yeah, so so three of them go to, to the site. And Ramsey doesn't want to leave because... And they're like, well, why? He's like, like he's kind of when they show up, he's like, yeah, I've been expecting you. Like, eventually, yeah. someone is probably going to come looking for us. And when they ask, well, why don't you want to leave? He said, well, after seven years, this is my home. You know, we have yeah. we a bunch of us have kids. This is my home now. Yeah, again, like there's this super uncomfortable scene where Beata has taken Riker to like a bedroom and like has changed into like a I guess less formal dress. And one thing that I kind of wanted to like explore with like through this podcast and through this rewatching of of Trek is to kind of look at how like romantic and or sexual relationships are portrayed and how they're used mm-hmm. because so like Riker has a a reputation as like this sort of ladies man kind of character right and this is the first instance that we're seeing him aside from his like knowing about his history with Troy this is the first instance where we're seeing him like actually I'm even hesitant to say like engaging in anything sexual because again, like it, it feels like it's really coercive. I'm curious to see how uh, sex and romance and love are portrayed. How much is like how how much how consent is portrayed versus how coercion is portrayed throughout the series. Yeah, especially when the when the power dynamic is is skewed. Yeah, so it's something I'm going to be keeping an eye on as we as we watch. Yeah. Anyway, uh, also one of the things that Ramsey says when he's talking to the away team, one of the things that he says his crew liked about the planet as, at first was that the women are tall and strong and very lovely. Yeah, I put a quote about that. He's like, <laughs> we thought we'd die to go to heaven. It's like, I, I guess so. Except we had no rights. Except we had no rights whatsoever. Yeah. I also, I wrote a note down here that, uh, that Ramsey has total like uh, MacGyver hair. I said, he, and it's awesome. He does. It's awesome. He also has hair. these great sandals. Everyone else oh, is I didn't wearing like that. full shoes, but the men in in like the men from the Odin are all wearing like these little sandals. Space sandals. Space sandals. But it turns out the Enterprise can't force uh, the Odin survivors to leave because they're not like a Starfleet ship. They were a freighter, so right. they're not bound by the uh, Prime Directive. Making them leave would be a violation of the Prime Directive at this point. Yeah, so basically they leave. They're like, okay, never mind. And then it turns out that Mistress Ariel, who is the mistress who really didn't want to tell anyone about the survivors, she is actually Ramsey's wife. Right. Also a nice, really brief scene on the on the Enterprise that made me think of like stuff going on with uh, COVID protocols here where Crusher's like, well, we've got more sick people than we have beds and LaForge is like... Yeah, I wrote that was too close to home. It, yeah, it was. But there's also, I, I kind of liked it that, that he's like, well, if this continues, there will be no one left to run the ship. And she's like, if this continues, nobody will be healthy enough to care, which, you know, thinking of what's going on, especially like in Ontario, for me, like with the government 
working to keep the economy running at the expense of people's health that like the idea of like, well, we need what we really need is people to run the ship. And Crusher's like, no, what we really need is for people to stay alive. Yeah, get healthy. Like that's that is more important than whether we'll have people like left to run the ship. Uh, there's a pandemic, but we're not going to make sure that people have paid sick leave and yeah. so keep going to work. And then when all the young labor force gets sick, we're going to blame all the young people for getting sick. Exactly. That's 100% where yeah, same we are thing right is, now. That's been going on out in BC. It's the same thing yeah. out here. Yep. So luckily, Crusher and LaForge do not take that approach. Because they're enlightened Starfleet officers. Exactly. There's a weird scene between Beata and Riker where she's talking about how great he is and how great it is to be with like a man who knows what he wants and and then, like, again, so Troy and Yara and Data, like, walk in on them. Awkward. Yeah, like, they knock first. Um, but there is, like, a again, like, a weird scene where Tasha's, like, looking like, oh, my God, like, Riker, what, <laughs> what's going on? And he kind of, he sort of does his classic, like, lifting of his chin to sort of be defiant. And again, like... This is an impo- this this is a not a cool situation that he is in. It's not that he's behaving inappropriately, I don't think. It's mm-hmm. that anyway, Crusher realizes she goes to visit Picard uh, and realizes that she smells something Klingon. And so that's how she realizes how the how the virus travels by right. smelling nice and encouraging people to inhale deeply. Inhale deeply. Yeah. Which is smart, smart virus. Yeah. And poor and tries to give him like super or no, that's later, I think. But she's just trying to make sure that he's okay. She's like giving she's feeding him. Picard's sick is funny. The way he acts that is it's hilarious. On the planet, the away team is like, well, I guess we are gonna go back to the ship. It's probably okay. These folks have been hiding from Beata for long enough. We're probably not leaving them in any any real danger because Beata has said that since they're not going to take since they're not going to take them away, she's going to sentence them to death. Right. Um, yeah, which but, is pretty hardcore. Yeah, holy moly. But then it turns out that she was able to find them because they she followed they Mr. tracked Ariel. Ariel. Yeah, so they must yeah. have been suspicious of her that she was actually connected yeah. to them. Yeah. Again, like Riker's like, okay, well, we'll take them. And it's interesting, like, Ramsey refuses on everyone's behalf. We don't actually learn what the other people think. I guess we're to assume that they've discussed this and they all, Ramsey's just, like, speaking for them all. I I had not thought of that. But, yeah, that is a good point. They're yeah. like, wait a second. I want to leave. I want to yeah. stay here and die. <laughs> and, actually, that the refusal to leave is a bit goofy, I think. I, I This is uh, – I – I don't know. It wasn't their home to begin with. They just crash landed there. And I don't know how attached you get to like some cave. Like they're living in this cave, it said earlier or yeah. showed earlier. Like I don't know how attached to that place you get. But I guess it's because some of them have made families with people who live there yeah. locally, right? So yeah. that might and, be. And that like they are willing to take all of them. But but yeah, I don't know. It's it's a little odd. It's not clear. Yeah. And and Riker Riker's actually yeah like he's willing to risk a court martial that he's going to take them against their their will yeah but Crusher's like well no you can't take them here because there's this massive virus now they have nowhere to go yeah so so Riker sends Data to take the ship to the neutral zone before it's too late the next morning Trent Trent comes and says. Come witness the reaffirmation of Angel One's moral imperative. That doesn't sound good. That's everything about that is going to be bad. Really long way of saying the execution. Yeah. And Riker says, like, you claim to be advanced, but resort to execution for those who don't share your views. And I thought, 
that that's a scary thing. That is a scary thing. And I wonder, yeah. you wonder how many times when executions are carried out, even in our own societies, mm-hmm. how often it is just because people don't share certain values or beliefs or views. We yeah. ch- might chalk it up to being some kind of criminal act. Criminal act, but certain acts are criminalized. Criminal, exactly. It turns out, though, that Data didn't take the ship. So this is where Data's accuracy becomes a strength that Riker specifically said, take the ship to the neutral zone before it's too late and data has done the math and he has determined that the 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 post and the ship i think it's the USS Berlin that are at the neutral zone will be okay if the enterprise doesn't leave for another 47 minutes right originally it's 48 but then it goes down to 47 thanks data so so this is where data's accuracy is a strength Beata shows how she's going to like vaporize the survivors. She's like, look, see, I'm compassionate. I'm going to, your death is going to be quick and painless. You'll yes. just be like literally vaporized, which is like another like super common way of justifying yeah. murder. There's a point here that I wanted to, I, I don't know how important this was, but it, I think this is me trying to give Riker more credit than his character probably was allowed to have in this episode. Mm-hmm. But at one point he goes, when he goes to petition her for the release of all the people that he goes in and like they did at the very beginning he like gets on his knees like prostrate before her and says mm-hmm. will you please let me take these people and I, I I do like that about Riker that he's willing to sort of he is willing to be a diplomat he wants to be diplomatic that's the sort of thing where it's like to me that's like he's respecting their custom yes yes because that's how not because he needs to like humiliate or like debase himself exactly like, that is how you appeal to someone or petition yeah and that's how they right? when they first met they had to do that they had to step in and they had to be yeah. on their knees and so i appreciated that about him in this one scene is that he's willing to do that he's not trying to be like you know he's like i'm gonna be the defiant or manly or i'm gonna threaten violence he's like i'm gonna go in and i'm going to try to save these people and i'll do what i have to do to make it happen and i i appreciated that moment about him when the prisoners are about to be executed he makes this big speech about like revolution versus evolution, evolution yeah and and you know you're gonna turn these people into martyrs and then they won't be silenced and i thought it was a little odd because i was kind of like how does he know because he says like these these people didn't create this conflict that you know there was already like there was, there was already ripples of dissent happening in like among your people anyway like how does he have any idea that that was the case how i interpreted that was because ariel was involved with them and and it i guess they implied that there were a number of uh, other members of their society that had already gone over there so i guess he was saying or thinking that there were there, these fractures in the society already existed maybe right but you're right it, it wasn't really baked into the episode very well it would have been kind of cool if someone other than Riker, i felt had made that point like tr- like trent like troy or yeah or yeah oh trent or i was thinking yeah. also like maybe even Troy. Like, yeah, or Troy. Or yeah. or just someone. There was a little bit of a feeling of like, you know, these irrational women just need this logical man. earth man <laughs> to, to mansplain sexism and to explain. Them. Yeah. Like it was I didn't love it. I like the idea it's not revolution but evolution. I'm like, that's that's kind of a cool concept. Yeah. But he's like, but it's not really their place to decide that. It's what that's when the episode kind of steps out and breaks the fourth wall, kind of like yeah. a little bit. But I was I was like, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I think that it would have been if there were people within their own society, like if Ariel had made that that dis- that conversation, it would yeah. have been more hard yeah. hitting, especially if he's trying to make the point that the fractures are happening within the society right. naturally. Yeah. I also like that he calls their execution. He says, "Before we see living proof of your <laughs> compassion," because <laughs> she says it's it's a compassionate. Yeah, execution. I, lo- I liked that. That was a good line. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Everything sort of 
comes together just in the nick of time. So Beata is like literally like Trent has his hand above the orb, which he uses to vaporize. Vaporizing orb. People. Yeah. Like it's right there. She doesn't stop until Ariel like screams her name. <laughs> and then she's like, okay, fine. Yeah. And then they they decide to adjourn to to think about what Riker has said. And meanwhile, Crusher finds the inoculant, which, you know, is a little a little faster than we were able to over here. With all the resources of the Enterprise. Yeah. I was thinking, yeah, nice. it, only, it only found it in a few minutes. And then I wrote down at warp speed. And then I was like, actually, wasn't that the name of the of the program that they did to try to get the, the vaccine? Oh, it was, was called it? The warp, it was called the warp speed program, yeah. Oh, I was yeah, like, oh, wow. Yeah, it was. So she literally, at warp speed, basically yeah, found. Yeah, actually, yeah. So basically, Riker's like, okay, well, we've got all the prisoners here. They're, you know, they're deciding whether they're going to execute. So stand by. You might have to beam all of us aboard. Right, right. So Beata comes back and says, okay, we're not going to kill them. And so this was interesting. She, What they're doing is basically exiling all of the Odin survivors and their families to like a really difficult place to live, like a remote island where it's going to be really difficult yeah. to live. And she like, says- weren't they, Isn't that where they already were? Well, that's yeah. What I thought. That's what I thought. <laughs> I was like, isn't that what they've been doing? But, I don't but know. What, so what she says, she says life will be difficult there with little time for revolutionary or evolutionary upheaval. And that reminded me of, I think it was when we did our episode on Code of Honor and you Mm -hmm. were reading something that was like, here is all the stuff that I would be able to do. It was something that someone had written that was like, here's all the stuff I would have been able to do if I didn't have to worry about sexism and racism. Oh, yeah. It was was a climate change activist. Right. Hi, everyone. This is Ruthie coming to you a few days later, having done the investigating that we didn't do during the recording of this episode. So just wanted to let you know that the article we discussed briefly here, the article that I mentioned is by Iana Elizabeth Johnson. It was published in the Washington Post on June 3rd of last year, uh, June 3rd, 2020. It's called I'm a Black Climate Expert. Racism derails our efforts to save the planet. And we talked about it not in our episode about Code of Honor, as I originally uh, thought. We actually talked about it in our sixth episode, which was about where no one has gone before. So we'll post a link to that in our show notes as well. All right. And I'll let you get back to the rest of the episode. Bye. All the work that they that she wished that she'd been able to do. But can't. Yeah. yeah. And and I was thinking also like this is something that I have heard a lot of people talking about specifically with unachievable like standards of like beauty standards mm-hmm. that like that specifically women are um and sort of feminized people are expected to adhere to that because you're so busy worrying about that you don't have any time to actually focus on gender equality because you're 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 too busy worrying if you are if your body is shaped the right way or if your skin has the right look to it or if your hair is right right and that that all of these things work to keep patriarchy in place and that what we have here is a little bit more um covert and implicit but she's like being super explicit about it she even says we may not be able to stop evolution but perhaps we can reduce it to a slow crawl so she's being very upfront but she does it with a smile so it's okay (laughs) she kind of she's like a wink wink nudge nudge at the end yeah you're like okay i guess this is some progress Anyway, so then then that's basically how the episode ends. Riker, Troy, and Yar return to the ship and they get inoculated. Picard is all hoarse, 
so he can't say engage. That's funny. So he looks over to Riker. Yeah, he's like, engage. And no one can hear him. Um, Weirdly, the door to the turbo lift is just wide open for this scene. It's for ventilation. That's important because of the pandemic. Right. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Got to keep the windows open. That's right. And then that and then the episode just ends. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And they they go on their way because that's that's how it is. Any final thoughts? I think I think that was a pretty good summary. Um I'm wondering if I'm going to cosplay Riker's uh, outfit at any point in the future in this one. With all that chest? All that chest? I mean, I don't know if anyone would recognize it. I think anyone would recognize any uh first season TNG era stuff by just how sparkly it was. So if I was wearing it, like anything really open-chested and sparkly, everyone would be like, oh, yep, that's season one or two TNG for sure. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of With the First Link. If you liked what you heard, please feel free to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or podcast provider of your choice. No, seriously. I'm not just going to glaze over this. Go and do it. If you haven't done it yet, please go and do that. It helps us. Let us know that you're listening to us, that we're not just speaking into the void. Thank you. Yeah, we we love seeing ratings and hearing what people think. Our cover art was created by Nathan Nunn, and you can find more of his work at nathannunn.ca. Our theme song is An Amazing Adventure by Flame Lion Studio. You can follow us on Instagram at firstlinkpod, or you can send us an email at firstlinkpod at gmail.com to let us know what your introduction to feminism was. I'm Ruthie. And I'm Matthew, and our next episode, as time of recording, will be posted in 11 days, 13 hours, and 56 minutes. (laughs) Nice.